The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. Uh, a very warm welcome to this Wednesday edition of Squawbox with Karen Cho and myself, Steve Sedgwick. These are your headlines. So the EU has shut out 10 major banks from its recovery fund bond sales. And financial giants including JP Morgan, Citigroup and Bank of America reportedly sidelined after previous market rigging scandals. The US and the EU burying the hatchet over aircraft subsidies, ending their record trade dispute. The Commission President Ursula von der Leyen saying issues still remain, but hails the deal as a major step. The uh, agreement we have found now really opens a new chapter in our relationship because we move from litigation to cooperation on aircraft. U.S. stocks ease off record levels as the Fed kicks off its two-day meeting. No policy moves are expected, but investors will be going through the small print looking for signs of a rate hike timeline. Presidents Biden and Putin prepare to meet on neutral ground in Geneva today as the Kremlin warns common ground could be hard to find. And CNBC hosts the first ever Evolve Global Summit where leaders and innovators share their strategies on adapting to a new era of business with Jeff speaking to IMF Managing Director Kristalina Gorgieva later on today. Right, happy Wednesday, everybody. Let's get straight to this story, which uh, I first read in the Financial Times. It's absolutely fascinating, and I think timing's interesting, and there's a lot of interesting comment out there, so let's get to it. The EU has excluded 10 banks, not just any banks. I'll just hold the line. Look at this. Barclays, Citi, JP, um, Deutsche. I mean, some big banks out there. Now, it's excluded 10 of these big names, uh, which is around about a quarter of the primary dealers, there's 39 out there, from taking part in a series of bond sales aiming to raise uh, funds for the bloc's 750 billion euro recovery plan. Now, according to an EU source, some lenders, which I say includes Barclays, Bank of America and Deutsche Bank, were blocked from the auctions because of previous breaches of antitrust rules. The, the key there is previous. These are historic offences. Nothing new in this one there. So let's get to Sylvia. Let's get her take, and then maybe I'll give you a couple more lines as well. Sylvia, good morning to you. So what's it all about? Good morning, Steve. So essentially, the Commission decided to exclude some banks from running its bond sales. And this is in the wider context of the 750 billion euros that the EU leaders committed last year to raise from public markets and to invest across the 27. Now, it's important to bear in mind, though, that according to the same European source, there is an ongoing assessment, which means that if the institutions that have been excluded for reasons of of antitrust infringements in the past, if they prove that in fact they have taken measures to avoid the same mistakes that they they made in the past, then they will be reconsidered for this uh, bond exercise that the EU is putting forward. And in fact, when I woke up this morning, I had a text message from a European official saying that things are moving fast in that context. But one thing is clear, though, is that the European Commission wanted to send this message that the anti 
stress rules in the block are meant to be complied with. But the other important aspect in this story is the fact that the Commission yesterday raised 20 billion euros from public markets through a 10-year bond. And this was actually the first step, the first time that the Commission tapped the markets to raise the 750 billion euros that are so important for all of the 27 member states. And there will be, of course, more, uh, more bond sales going forward. And this is what we heard yesterday from Commissioner Hyun, who is in charge of this uh, huge exercise. Let's take a listen. By the end of 2021, we expect uh, to raise at least some 80 billion in bonds to be complemented if necessary, and it will be the case by short-term EU bills, um, and this will allow us uh, to show the necessary flexibility to serve the financial needs and expectations of our member states. So the other important element here that we've talked about in the past is the recovery plans. So those, those are the, uh, the outline uh, where the, the countries outline how they will be investing the money that they will receive from uh, the European Commission going forward. And yesterday, the Commission already approved the first recovery plans. They are of Portugal, Spain, Greece, Denmark and Luxembourg. And essentially, all of these, Steve, tells us that uh, the leaders agree on this huge stimulus package uh, July of, uh, of last year and now we're finally seeing the first practical steps on the ground with the bond sale and of course with the approval of the first recovery plans. Excellent. Um, thank you very much indeed for that. Um, Karen, I, I, I'm mildly underwhelmed by this story but equally so I think it's very interesting that the EU is exerting some form of uh, muscle um, towards the banks it thinks has historically transgressed. Um, so I tried to find an angle on this. So I, I went down to the comments section of the FT, actually, and I didn't find an angle, but I did find 242 comments, and it was pretty much 120 saying the EU is ridiculous, they shouldn't do this. And it was 120 saying the banks should have um, been penalised further and why shouldn't we punish them? So it's pretty even, Stephen. I, I, I didn't find anyone else saying what I thought. And this was... This is a uh, bond issuance of about 20 billion euros, I understand, with 140 billion euros worth of bids for it. So it's got a bid to cover ratio of what, you know, seven to one or something. Um, would the EU have even thought to do this if we weren't in an era, era where basically bond yields were zero? And of course, bids are furiously high for any form of issuance, of course, because there is no yield or return out there as well. And the fact that you've got an ECB backstop on every single piece of European paper in more normal times where we didn't have. And let's be honest about it. Manipulated bond markets by institutions would we really see the EU or whoever it is is the, is the, the ECB being so bold in chucking these 10 primary dealers out of the auction? So you're saying the, the ECB is holding the chips so it could make the call at this particular well, I mean, moment in time? At the moment in, time, right? in the cycle, it's very easy to cut a quarter of the primary right. issuers out or primary dealers out of this because we know that it's bid only. Well, I'd make a different point. I mean, we, we see lots of uh, fines, misdemeanours over the years and investors largely treat them as one-off still. Mm. So effectively, once you get past the amount of the fine and what the exposure is likely to be and any immediate remedies required, then you can start to reprice the stock and move forward. But this is telling you that there could be legacy effects. It may not actually be a one-off if it's going to impact future business. So do we need to reassess now the risks or the implications of some misdemeanours when they crop up? 
up. The other point is, you know, extracting the banks that were, okay, supposedly clean banks to deal with. There have been misdemeanors at those particular banks for other issues as well. Money laundering at HSBC over the years, for instance. Yeah. Danske Bank had similar issues. Danske is one of the ones allowed in. And I saw one of the comments. They're a laundromat for a lot of the dirty money for, right. that was coming via the Baltics at one stage. And I think it's fair to say it was at one point. So it's a little bit hard to, to pick which criminal activity is okay and which is not if you're going to be excluded from future bond sales. Anyway. Well, yeah, I'll just say one more thing. Greek five-year paper, as I mentioned yesterday, turned negative as well uh, in that kind of environment. You could probably exclude 38 of the 39 primary dealers and still get your issuance away. Right. And let's push on. The EU and US uh, have agreed to lift tariffs on $11.5 billion worth of goods for five years as they reached a truce in a long-running dispute over aircraft subsidies. Both sides agreed to provide financing to plane makers like Boeing and Airbus on market terms. Meanwhile, Brussels also removed punitive import taxes on American steel and aluminium products for six months as talks continue. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen said the agreement marks a new chapter in the bloc's relationship with Washington. The bilateral trade and investment between the European Union and the United States of America is unrivaled. Despite the pandemic, trade between the European Union and the US was worth almost 1 trillion euro in 2020. And to preserve this, we discussed that we need to adapt to an even more competitive and more diversified global environment. And therefore, we decided to establish a EU-US Trade and Technology Council. We want, of course, uh, to expand EU-US trade and investments. But we also want to discuss uh, how we avoid new unjustified technical barriers and how to cooperate in areas with high potential from our economy, especially, of course, in the digital technology. U.S. Trade Representative Catherine Tai said the deal will help workers in the aerospace sector. Our goal was clear, to forge a new cooperative relationship in this sector so that our producers and our workers can compete on a more level playing field. After 16 very long years, <laughs> uh, this deal achieves that goal. Some of the highlights of the deal include a framework for ensuring a level playing field, to address our differences and shared challenges in the sector. Importantly, it also includes a long-term suspension of tariffs that have affected important stakeholders on both sides of the Atlantic. Airbus said it welcomed the trade deal, saying it will help avoid the lose-lose impact of reciprocal tariffs. Boeing also backed the agreement and vowed to work with the U.S. to respect its terms. Again, I've got one more comment. And, and, and again, I don't mean to be dismissive. It's very important that there's peace on the transatlantic basis. But, but I think the US trade representatives are saying, you know, this will assure jobs kind of thing. Well, what assures jobs more? A global competitive market for these two manufacturers or actually when their jobs are protected because there is protectionist behaviour by both parties? Yeah. I don't know. I, don't, I just kind of like, so if you have protectionism, presumably that is protectionism to, because you want to keep employment and, and production domestically. Whereas if you don't have protectionism, does that mean that your jobs are more at risk? It was also less than clear whether the support just gets removed now, whether the two work together to try and ward off the challenge of China, Comac, which yeah. is a, just a, a different form of protectionism, isn't it? 
I, I, I think you're right. And also, let's be honest about it, the market is dismal at the moment. I saw uh, another piece today saying that business travel will not recover anywhere near to where it was to at least 2024. I think it could be longer than that as well. So. One other point here too, I mean, this was sort of kicked into the long grass to try and resolve for five for years. What happens in five years' time? You'd have to say there would likely be a different US president in the White House. Do you, does the issue then crop up down the track? Is this just a, a truce for the time being? And look at some of the planes they've made as well. The A380, I think we can say now, was a financial disaster and has proved a bit of a... As uh, enjoyable as it was and as it has been. Yeah, yeah, I'd, I've been on a couple. I've been at the back, I've been a little bit nearer the front, front. <laughs> and they're, and they're, and they're <laughs> lovely planes. Yeah, yeah, I have to say, I went to your, your wonderful country on the, on the back of one to watch some cricket once. Uh, anyway... Uh, reminisce. Uh, US retail sales declined 1.3% in May compared with the previous month and against expectations for a drop of 0.8%. The Commerce Department revised April's number to a 0.9% uptick instead of being unchanged. On an annual basis, retail sales jumped 28.1% as the world's biggest economy continued to recover from the pandemic. I think the PPI is, for me, Perhaps even more interesting, the producer prices accelerated faster than expected in May, climbing 0.8% on a monthly basis versus 0.6% in April. Why do I care about this? Well, because the average monthly rise between 2017 and 2019 was only 0.2 of 1%. Now, compared with a year ago, this is where the numbers get quite interesting. Factory gate prices spiked 6.6%, okay? 6.6%. That is the largest gain in over a decade. I presume there was turmoil on the markets because, oh no, not really, they barely moved. Well, I think investors largely waiting it out for Jay Powell to speak and to see what the culmination of this two-day Fed meeting actually means for the, the outlook for monetary policy, whether the, the talk of tapering begins at some point and also the dot plots around interest rates and what we've got on the markets, a reversal, probably uh, fairly cautious behaviour as was anticipated. So two-tenths of a percent down for the S&P at the Dow also pulling that S&P 500 index away from those recent records that have been notched up. Same story, too, for the Nasdaq that got to a peak a day earlier, just giving back some of that territory down seven-tenths of a percent uh, for the Dow. The One of the biggest impacts to the downside was Salesforce, Apple and Tesla for the S&P 500. But I dare say investors uh, might get more movement in the markets as uh, Jay Powell speaks later on today. Let's take a look at uh, Treasuries and what we're expecting to, to see here. 1.49%. We're still tame. We've been lower. We've been at the lower end of this 1.4% range, 1.43, for instance. So we've just bumped up a little bit and closer to the 1.5% mark. But a little bit of uh, technicals in the mix here around positioning. So uh, Fed speak will be quite important for the bond markets later on. And let's take a look at uh, what we're seeing on the trade for oil. Uh, so far, WTI and Brent both perched higher this morning and you can see further inching into the 70 plus range at this stage, almost 75 on Brent. Gold prices are flat 18.58 in the morning session. Now, lumber, this is where you've seen a lot of the price action. We've been mostly talking about the moves to the upside of late, uh, given what we're seeing on the outlook for inflation. This is a closely watched area of the markets, but we have since reversed. And it's worth noting how quickly we've come off that peak that we saw in May. We're down about 42% since that level. So a very swift reversal. We've declined 14 out of the past 15 trading days. And there's some are wondering whether we've now seen the uh, pent-up demand story fade and uh, supply has managed to correct some of that demand. We'll get into this in just a moment, but let's just take a look at the Asian markets. Uh, fairly cautious too. Again, this wait-and-see approach for the Fed. Uh, this is uh, what uh, those Asian markets are dealing with. And you can see it as a tone of red across the board. China trades down eight-tenths of a percent. 
we're waiting for a big batch of data out uh, in the next couple of hours. That will be uh, key for those Chinese markets as well. The opening calls, uh, let's see how Europe is setting up for the trading session. We had the eighth positive one in a row for the uh, benchmark for the Stocks Europe 600 yesterday. And individual markets were actually trading stronger. In particular, we had about a third of a percent on the core markets. You can see very, fairly tame ranges this morning. Green arrows, but not much at this stage. Steve. Excellent. Right. Well, as Karen mentioned, today's CNBC Evolve Global Summit will bring together leaders and innovators to share strategies on adapting and transforming in a new era of business. As part of the event hosted across the US, Asia and Europe for the first time, our very own leader, Jeff, will uh, speak with the IMF Managing Director, Kristalina Gorgieva, about the fund's view on the global economic recovery and how to keep sustainability. I'm having a chat about that one at the heart of policy going forward. We will bring you all those uh, highlights, including Karen's uh, panels as well, across various CNBC platforms. Meanwhile, coming up on the show, President Biden touches down in Geneva ahead of his meeting with the Russian President, Vladimir Putin. We'll have more on this next. And don't forget, for more on these bond sales, you can check out the Sportbox podcast. Ambition to me is about doing better. I think ambition creates a pathway. The best advice I can give someone starting off a career is don't have a career, have lots of careers, try loads of different things. Talk to people and put your ambition out there. I don't feel that I've hit peak ambition because it's a learning journey. CNBC is where ambition meets opportunity. What does living ambitiously mean to you? Hear it from our CNBC anchors, reporters and global business leaders on CNBC.com. Welcome back. President Biden touched down in Geneva ahead of today's uh, first in-person meeting with the Russian President Vladimir Putin. Uh, That's the first one since taking office. Uh, Issues, of course, include Ukraine, Belarus, human rights and cybersecurity set to be discussed. The meeting is set to last, wait for it, four to five hours. Goodness me. Each leader is due to hold a solo press conference afterwards. Well, Ian Bond is Director of uh, Foreign Policy at the Centre for European Reform. And and Ian, I've been to one or two of these Geneva meetings uh, over the Minsk process over the years. And and I, I can't help thinking that we're at... Uh, adversarial business as usual between the US and Russia? Or uh, do you believe that things are actually getting a little bit worse between the the West and Russia at the moment? Good morning, sir. Good morning. Well, this is an attempt, I think, to to stabilise the situation. I mean, the the slogan from the Americans has been that they want predictability and stability in the relationship. And it has been on a downward spiral. Things have certainly been getting worse. Um, I, I don't think we will see a return to business as usual at the moment, because from Putin's point of view, I think that, you know, he in many respects is is still in a relatively weak position uh, economically in terms of Russia's response to the to the uh, COVID pandemic and so on. And it makes sense for him to try and keep his adversaries off balance and guessing what his next move will be. So I think the Americans will try to uh, to impose a bit more framework on this relationship. I'm not sure that they will necessarily succeed. 
About five or six years ago, I upset the Secretary of State, actually, um, uh, Mr Kerry, because I uh, stood up in a press conference in that fair city of Geneva and turned around and said, look, the US doesn't seem to be mentioning uh, Crimea itself as a part of the resolution. As the West, pretty much. I mean, I think I know uh, Mr Zelensky might disagree, but the West has given up on Crimea as well. But indeed, it still keeps sanctions because of Crimea. And Russia's never going to give up Crimea. So I don't know how we move on on that issue, for instance, Ian. Well, never is a long time. And what one has to remember is that, for example, when the West um, refused to recognize the annexation of the Baltic states by the Soviet Union at the end of World War II, uh, they they persisted in that policy of non-recognition until 50 years later, the Baltic states regained their independence. So I, you know, I think it's possible to, to maintain that position of not recognizing Russia's annexation formally, diplomatically, uh, for a very long time and to, to keep in place the kinds of sanctions that make it difficult for uh, Western entities to work in Crimea and so on. Um, and obviously that's undesirable for Putin, but I don't suppose it's the end of the world for him. But it's important to underline that, you know, a breach of international law on that scale can't simply be uh, shrugged at. In speaking of press conferences, I want to bring up today's schedule. No joint press conference, apparently. President Biden didn't want to be uh, served up any surprises in front of journalists, so there will be separate briefings with journalists from both leaders. And uh, the length of the meeting, uh, four to, to five hours, according to those that have been preparing the schedule. What can we read into the, the events as they've been listed? Well, there's a lot of business to be done. Uh, and I'm not sure what the division of, of the time will be between uh, plenary meetings and um, these sort of small meetings between, on the one side, uh, Putin and Lavrov, and on the other side, Biden and Blinken. Um, but, you know, they've got a lot of business to get through, apart from um, the the litany of U.S. complaints about Russian behavior, whether that's cyber attacks or um uh ukraine which we've just mentioned or or whatever um but also you know wider international issues um syria and so on and then also on the bilateral front they have a lot of uh of business to do about uh the return of their ambassadors to to um each other's capitals about uh rebuilding their diplomatic presences after a period when there have been large-scale expulsions on both sides so there's quite a long agenda ian if you read some of the analysis already it feels as though the americans think that they've had proportionate responses to a lot of the events that have transpired in particular the most recent ones that you know solar winds that would be talking about the meddling in the 2020 election other ransomware attacks that have happened uh, and namely this uh, also a uh, use of a, a nerve agent potentially against the opposition leader and alexei navalny do you think the u.s response has been proportionate enough so to send a message to vladimir putin or do you think they need to step it up well, I, I got the feeling from from the comments that Biden has been making that actually there's more to come. Uh, and one should remember that actually on the ransomware issue, uh, the Americans have not really had the chance to respond to that yet. Um, so, you know, we've had the colonial pipeline hack and uh, the, the meat, meat packing uh, company hack. Um, you know, both of those are, I mean, they're criminal hacks but they are hackers who seem to be tolerated by the Russian state. 
Uh, and so I would expect that the Americans will go after that quite uh, quite hard. Um, I spent a lot of time looking at NATO and the relationship between the West and the Russians and the West now and China as well. But what we don't seem to know enough about is the relationship between Russia and China as well. If indeed that is what Joe Biden's trip uh, to Europe has been about, i.e. getting Western allies on side against a whole host of potential adversaries. How is the relationship between Russia and China at the moment? I mean, it's always been one of uh, obviously moving in a similar path politically, but but as, well, certainly in, in the last hundred years. But it, but in terms of their relationship now are they close or not well they're closer than they have been for some time um, and that's a warming up that started in in 2014 uh, but it's still i mean it, it's a very curious relationship in some ways uh, russia continues to supply arms to china's main regional rivals particularly india and vietnam so you know that's a, a curious sort of relationship um the chinese from time to time will remind the russians um subtly or less subtly that uh, the that um russia in the 19th century bit off a large chunk of chinese territory in the far northeast you know the area around vladivostok um and uh, you know that that's one of the the so-called unequal treaties that the chinese complain about as as part of their uh, so-called century of humiliation at the hands of um, imperialist powers from outside. So it's, it's not a very smooth relationship at every level, but there's no doubt that, that tactically both of them see the US as the main adversary and they're prepared to park some of their bilateral tensions in the interests of working together against the US. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.